from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Taylor. How's it going? I'm doing good. I see we have a special guest today. Yeah, Luke Bornheimer. Hi, Luke. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Luke has a website. It has to do with the theme of this episode. Thanks, Nick. This week I launched flowstreet.us. Uh, which is a website for all things related to slow streets, including programs from around the United States, news and op-ed, and initiatives related to the slow streets movement. And people can learn more by going to slowstreets.us or following Slow Streets SF on Twitter. We did a show about a month ago about some of the slow streets up in San Francisco, so I'm sure that they're on it. And so the theme of the week is is protected bike lanes? Yep. Love the lane, baby. Love them. Some hate them. We love them. People hate them everywhere they show up. That's a big part of this. I don't get that. And 90% of the deaths for cyclists on streets in Los Angeles happen on streets without bike lanes. So it's a no-brainer. You want to save lives, put a bike lane on the street. Yeah. And so you're going to hear a very inspiring story about a complete street in Toronto where they were able to keep it despite opposition. But uh, Seamus, you want to tell us about your celebrity encounter this week? The John Bouchers was in Los Angeles with some friends. They were riding around and I got to connect with them in Echo Park and hand off some Bike Talk stickers. Seamus, I'm kind of an idiot. I don't know who John Bouchers is. He is the mayor of a city called Emeryville, but he is famous for really being an incredible bike advocate in the area. Great. And coming up first, Yonge Street in Toronto, right? They fought for a bike lane there, Nick, and seems like they won. Yeah, here, I will introduce it. Bike Talk host Madeline Bonsma-Fisher interviews the spokesperson for Young for All. Robin Richardson tells the story of how Toronto City Council ended up voting 22 to 4 to keep Young Complete Street as a permanent part of Toronto's active transportation network. So Young for All recently had a big victory. Um, can you tell me about... Yeah, the campaign and and what's the latest developments and what your role has been? Of course. So Young for All builds on work that cycling and safe streets advocates have been doing in Toronto for a long time. Young Street, for anybody who doesn't know, is sort of the, the main street of Toronto. It runs right down the middle. It is the supposedly the longest street in the world because it stretches from Lake Ontario all the way up to the city border of Toronto. And for a long time, advocates had said, you know, we should really try to put in some bike lanes on Young Street. But there was a lot of pushback on that, as there is pretty much anywhere you put a bike lane. And then when the COVID pandemic occurred, uh, suddenly everybody sort of saw things a little bit differently, at least temporarily. So everybody will remember how in the early days of the pandemic, People weren't going to work. Kids weren't going to school. And so there were very few motor vehicles on our streets. People came out of their homes and they were walking. People who hadn't ridden a bike in years hauled it out from the back of the garage and dusted it off and rode it around. And it was this incredible feeling of connecting with people in a safe way outdoors in the fresh air. Um, And also rediscovering what a city could look like if it wasn't completely dominated by cars and trucks. In that atmosphere, uh, the government of Toronto decided to start a program they called Active TO. 
ActiveTO was designed to give more safe space for people to move around on foot or on wheels. It had many different facets, but the one nearest and dearest to my heart was that they put in a pilot project of a complete street design on Young Street, right smack dab in the middle between Bloor and Davisville, which happens to be the part of Young that's closest to where I live. The complete street had a bike lane and it had other elements as well. They added accessibility platforms to bus stops. They added patio bump outs for restaurants. And then it also had some sidewalk improvements like some additional benches and plantings and artwork and things like that. And the goal of a complete street is to make the streetscape safe and welcoming for everyone who visits, not just drivers and not just pedestrians, but also transit users and cyclists and, and people who use mobility devices and little kids on roller skates and anything you can think of. It worked. It drew so many more people to this stretch of young people on bicycles, people on foot, every kind of walking and wheeling that you can imagine. And those street side patios were packed with people. And it was a, a nice way to reconnect both with local retail and restaurants, but also with neighbors who you would bump into out on the street. So it was wonderful. And but it was set up as a temporary measure. And Last spring, there was some opposition to it. People didn't like it. They wanted Young Street to go back the way it was, to just motor vehicle traffic, curb to curb. They had started a petition, and they were trying to get Mayor Tory and the rest of council to remove all of these new improvements and put it back the way it used to be. I used to live in Toronto when it looked like it used to look, and I heard from a friend about the pilot program, and I saw a picture, and it blew my mind how different it looked like you know it was a complete transformation yeah yeah I mean <laughs> it was wonderful and I couldn't bear to see them take it away so I said well I want to help how do we show that there's actually a lot of community support for this so a few of us got together and we decided to call our campaign young for all and the all really refers to all the people in the community and all the different ways of getting there and all the ages of people who want to visit Young Street and all of us, as opposed to basically just being designed for drivers. There was still space for drivers. We didn't close this, the street completely to cars, not by a long shot. They still had a full width lane in each direction. There were, in fact, more parking spaces in this area after the redesign than there had been before. Dedicated left turn lanes were installed to keep traffic flowing more freely and make it easier for people to go onto side streets and things like that. So it actually made for a safer and more um, organized experience for drivers as well, mm. plus the obvious benefits that it had to people who cycle or walk or use a wheelchair or a jogging stroller or anything like that. So we set out to represent the people in our community that liked these changes. We deliberately took a very positive approach. So sometimes 
in cycling advocacy, it's easy to get angry. And I certainly have done my fair share of yelling at drivers who have put me or my kids in danger as I'm riding around. But we didn't want this to be an angry campaign or a protest campaign. We wanted this to be a celebration and a positive, inclusive campaign that showed how Young Street was so much more welcoming and vibrant now, and that we were grateful to council for having taken a risk and installed this infrastructure and look how many people love it and look at all the benefits that it brings and let's make it permanent. So we built a website and we used social media and we also spent quite a lot of hours standing on Young Street and also attending nearby community events and talking to people about the complete street, what a complete street is, because that's not a phrase that's really in common use yet. People know what a bike lane is, but they don't really know what a complete street is. So we talked a lot about that and how there were improvements for all kinds of users. And we also invited people to add their names to our petition in support if they wanted to see this complete street made permanent. And so we earned um, over 8,000 names on that petition, most of which were gathered in person, the rest on social media. And we also approached local businesses and residents associations and community groups and environmental groups to talk, and of course, safe streets organizations. And most of those didn't need much convincing because the benefits are just very clear. And so we did have an enormous amount of support from the community. Now, we did still face some opposition. And we see this often with complete streets installations that local businesses believe that most of their customers come by car and that if you make it a little more difficult for people to come by car, that all their business will go away and they will go out of business and they get very worried. And I can relate to that. I run a small business too, and I wouldn't feel very great about something that I thought was putting my business at risk. But in fact, there have been many studies done, even right here in Toronto on Bloor Street, that show that people who arrive to your neighborhood on foot or by bicycle tend to come more often and spend more on each trip when they are there. So we have the data to show that. Most people don't intuitively believe data. They believe their gut. And especially if they themselves arrive by car, it's hard for them to believe that other people might come a different way. And they typically aren't asking their customers, how did you get here? Uh, they just assume that people came by car um, unless they walk in with a bike helmet on. Um, and in many cases, that just isn't true. So we have some work yet to do to help the local businesses see that this really does bring benefits to them as well. And there are some local residents who are really having trouble adjusting to the change. Interestingly, it's not the complete street that they object to, but really just the bike lanes. They just cannot find it in their hearts to share Young Street with people on bicycles. So that's something that I'm still grappling with is how do you make contact with people who are so against the idea of having bike lanes on their main street that they 
don't listen to the data and they don't listen to, you know, 8,000 of their neighbors telling them that they like it and they just dig in their heels, I'm not sure. I'm still working on that one. But the happy conclusion is that with all of that support, we went first to the Infrastructure and Environment Committee, which is a subcommittee um, at City Hall that specifically you know, considers projects like this. And they voted unanimously to keep the pilot project as a permanent installation and to make that recommendation to the full council. And then the next week, it came before council. And after quite a bit of debate, the final vote was 22 councillors in favor of making it permanent and only four objecting. It, it was a huge success. And what we really hope is that this will be an example that can be followed both on other parts of Young Street, because this is only a tiny piece of the longest street in the world. Um, we want to connect it to another complete street project that's been approved south of us and another one north of us. Right now, it's just sort of little chunks, but we would like it to be a continuous, safe, and welcoming experience along the full length of Young Street within the city limits of Toronto. And then after that, hopefully we can connect with residents of the other communities to our north and see it go all the way from lake to lake. Uh, that that would be ideal. And then we also want to see other areas of Toronto that are underserved with safe streets infrastructure be able to copy and paste this idea. There are so many other mini main streets in Toronto that deserve to have all the benefits that a complete street brings, both in terms of you know, support for local businesses and livability for residents and also... You know, what we found when we were gathering signatures for our petition is that quite a lot of people lived in other areas of the city or even other parts of the country or internationally and had come to Young Street as a tourist to experience it the way you might go to Europe or Montreal or anywhere else that has sort of that vibrant street scene. And we want that for all of Toronto. That's really great to hear. And I'd love to see the city start taking a more holistic approach to this without so much fighting needed to make it happen every time. Because it feels like every time it's really such a battle. But exactly. the Young Street pilot lasted for about 18 months. And our campaign to save it was about half of that time. And while it was time well spent, you know, if it takes that long to get 3.2 kilometers of complete street, you know, we're never going to make the changes we need in the time frame that we need to make them in. So we have an interesting situation now in Toronto where we are going to have a by-election for mayor. The next thing we need to do is try to get a mayor elected who understands the value of complete streets and other climate infrastructure and all kinds of other you know, helpful choices so that we don't have to fight for every little piece. The truth is that City Council voted unanimously on a plan called Transform Toronto or Transform TL, which calls for 70% of trips under five kilometers to be made without a car by 2040. So these kinds of projects should just get rubber stamped. Like, will this help us achieve Transform TO? Yes, it will. Okay, good. Next. But that's not where we are right now. It's my hope that we will get new leadership 
that will just sort of empower city staff to act on the legislation that's already been put in place. Similar Vision Zero was also passed unanimously and Vision Zero means that there should be zero deaths or serious injuries from traffic collisions. And we are very far from that goal right now. And complete streets obviously are a really important tool in that effort. And so anytime you redesign a road, anytime there's an opportunity, we should be putting these in. I guess we will see how the election goes. With any luck, we'll get someone who doesn't make us fight for every <laughs> for every kilometer. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me. Um, last question for you is, are you going to go for a bike ride today? <laughs> of course, I'm going to go for a bike ride today. Absolutely. I take my kids to and from school by bike, so I'm going to be doing that. I need to go get groceries. I will be doing that. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I go for a bike ride every day because A, that's how I get around and B, that's where I find joy. Even on a day where I don't have any errands or school trips or things that I have to do, if I don't get out on my bike, I, I really miss it. Um, it lifts my mood and honestly, it makes me feel 25 years younger and who doesn't want that? <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, thank you so much. It was really great to hear your thoughts on this and your very wise perspective on on advocacy and and transitioning to a cycling lifestyle. So thank you again for talking to me. Thanks, Madeline. That was Madeline Bonsma Fisher interviewing Robin Richardson on Yonge Street in Toronto. Like Yonge Street, Stanley Park Drive in Vancouver got its lane during the pandemic. Unlike Yonge Street, the Vancouver Park Board has voted to dismantle almost all Stanley Park Drive's protected bike lane. Lucy Mahoney and the group called Love the Lane fought for Stanley Park Drive's protected bike lane. And Lucy tells a story. At the beginning of the pandemic, the City of Vancouver and the Park Board shut Stanley Park to cars for a couple of months as a pandemic measure. All of a sudden, there was this massive influx of Vancouverites who were out to have their pandemic exercise session riding around Stanley Park Drive. All the cyclists were on the road and people loved it. The figures were extraordinary. The number of people riding around Stanley Park through the forest. They put in a separated bike lane so that cars could come back into the park and start visiting again. That winter, they took it out again, and then the following spring, they put it in again with a better design that still wasn't perfect. And it's become a real culture war in Vancouver, unfortunately. You can imagine that there's all the bike lane haters. Two of the park board commissioners really based their public profile on opposing this bike path. They got a lot of attention from the mainstream media with blanket statements, very misleading statements like that you couldn't access the park in a car, even though drivers have had access to all the destinations in the park just with a single lane. But a single lane is not enough for motorists, apparently, and they need two lanes. We had municipal elections in October and a new political party called ABC swept to power with a supermajority. So where we had a majority of commissioners on the park board that were voting to keep 
the bike lane in place. Now we had a party that had promised to support the separated bike lane. Immediately after the election, we had park board commissioners from this new party ABC saying we're going to take the lane out over winter and then we're going to install an improved design in time for summer. Reality hit pretty quick and they realised that you can't just remove uh, concrete gravity barriers overnight. There were various improvements that weren't going to be cheap or easy to remove. So as of today, even though the municipal elections were in October, we still have most of the bike lane in, in place. Now, on Monday night, the uh, ABC majority um, voted to rip out the remainder of the separated bike lane, leaving only a few features left in place. There's going to be no separated bike lane in place this summer, and uh, they've asked for a report to be delivered in November, which will have some kind of a staff proposal for the permanent bike lane. I'm perplexed because um, for this meeting that, that happened on Monday night, staff prepared a 20-page report, which seems to not have been taken into account in making this decision on Monday night. They've basically identified that the bike lane is not the cause of the traffic congestion. The idea that ABC was floating of having two lanes plus a three-metre wide bike lane would cost 20 to $50 million per side of the park. So potentially 40 to $100 million. There would be trees bulldozed and pavements widened. And one more lane is not going to fix traffic congestion in the, in the park. There was traffic congestion in the park before COVID in the setup. And there will be again, no matter whether there's one lane or two, it's just that we're not going to have dedicated, safe, protected space to cycle on Stanley Park Drive this summer. And there are vague promises to put in a permanent bike lane, but uh, I don't know how that's going to go or when that's going to happen. How long have you been involved in this? My organisation, Love the Lane, has really just been formed in response to the municipal elections and the promises to remove this bike lane and reinstate it. There is an, another more formal cycling advocacy group in Vancouver called Hub Cycling, but because they do a whole bunch of things like run cycling classes for school children and a broad range of government-funded activities, they're not able to be as responsive and perhaps politically direct and um, speak truth to power, I guess, so much as a separate organization. But I do check in with them and make sure that what we're doing complements their efforts. And they have also been campaigning to keep this bike lane in place in Stanley Park. And it's funny, since the, the election of ABC and since the meeting on Monday night, critical mass has just re-emerged in Vancouver. You know, it, it's never really gone away, but because they've been doing critical mass rides on for last Friday of the month continuously. But this week, since the decision on Monday night, we've got a lot of organizing happening for critical mass. So in sort of in reaction, you think? You think there's a connection? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was that evening we started getting anonymous emails from critical mass with the username on Twitter, critical mass is back. The ABC Park Board commissioners and campaign people 
maybe don't realise how widespread support is for cycling in Stanley Park. It's just people love it. People can't understand why you would take out this lane. The ABC political party probably um, have friends and sponsors and um, associates who probably are more conservative and might still be anti-bike lane. Whereas I think in Vancouver, it's getting more and more mainstream to support bike lanes. We've got a really good and improving separated bike lane network. Of course, it's never quite good enough for us. And there are areas of Vancouver that are neglected compared to downtown, which has got lots of beautiful new separated bike paths. And I think people realise that Bike lanes aren't the end of the world here in in Vancouver. You know, about 12 years ago, there was a massive fight to install separated bike lanes on one of the bridges. And, you know, the mayor got death threats. (laughs) But everyone now, in retrospect, can see that it was the best possible decision. But always at the time, it's a major drama. And it's exactly the same with Stanley Park. If we can just get through and get a separated bike lane eventually, a permanent one on Stanley Park Drive, in 10 years' time, no one will even bat an eyelash, but uh, I'm not finished with it yet, I'm afraid. You know, the ABC Park Board Commissioners are still saying that they're planning to put in a permanent bike lane on Stanley Park Drive, but what we're looking at now is too expensive and too big on bulldozing the actual park itself. (laughs) So... I, I'm really hoping that they change their minds about having two lanes for cars all the way around the park plus a bike lane. Oh, so they want just a bigger, more expensive bike lane that has two lanes of car traffic? Well, I'm really trying to refocus the discussion because there is enough room on Stanley Park Drive for a nice wide bike lane, a three metre wide bike lane, plus one general vehicle lane plus pull-out areas for the horse-drawn carriage and overtaking areas for cars. But they want to build an extra general vehicle lane. I don't want people to be saying the bike lane's going to cost 20 to $50 million. I want people to be saying the extra car lane is going to cost 20 to $50 million because the, the bike lane, making it more permanent, that's going to cost... Uh, less than $600,000. All this expensive earth moving and pavement expanding is for an extra general vehicle lane (laughs) because we all know that bike lanes are not bike infrastructure, they're car infrastructure. We saw that in the first two months of the pandemic when the park was closed to private motor vehicles No one needed a separated bike lane. The only reason for a separated bike lane is to protect cyclists from drivers. So bike lanes are car infrastructure, and that's just like an extra lane on Stanley Park Drive to allow there to be two general vehicle lanes plus one bike lane. All the bulldozing and expensive earthworks and paving and work is for an extra general vehicle lane. We don't need it for bikes. 
They need some cars. Yeah, that's a good point. There will be a bike lane one way or the other. You're just now fighting for the bike lane without the extra card lane. Well, we're getting our bike lane taken out and who knows if we'll ever get it back. You know, people who are more cynical than me are saying the reason why they're proposing this two car lanes plus a bike lane that's so expensive and ridiculous in terms of bulldozing trees is because they have no intention of putting it in a permanent bike lane. And that might be the case. They might be lying to my face. They might have logistical and financial difficulties. Staff say the two lanes plus bike lane has to be done realistically in only two sections. So the capital budget doesn't have the cash in it right now to do that and won't for several years. So, you know, that staff was saying 20 to $50 million per side of the park and 10 years to put it in place by the time you get the money in the capital budget. So, um, yes, cynics would say that by taking the temporary bike lane out instead of improving it and then putting in the permanent bike lane incrementally as it's designed and as the money comes available means that they have no intention of ever putting in a a separated bike lane on Stanley Park Drive. I hope that's not the case, but I also can't support pavement widening and bulldozing of trees because we know that that's an absolute waste of public money because as soon as you allocate an extra lane to vehicles, it'll fill up just like LA freeways. It'll induce traffic into the park. You'll still have traffic congestion at peak times. So I'm disappointed that year-round safe cycling for for people in Stanley Park has been sacrificed for the convenience of motorists at peak times. And your website is? Hopperlane.ca. Yep. Pretty catchy, huh? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Lucy. We can keep up with your work at lovethelane.ca. Yeah, I'm hoping to retire from my media career pretty soon, but it's not looking very likely, unfortunately. (laughs) I mean, I feel super honoured to kind of have this unofficial cyclist community representative position. I take it really seriously. I'm really glad I did it because I'm trying to not just preach to the converted. I really am highly motivated to do something about climate change via active transport infrastructure, reducing the size of cars, hopefully, but uh, that's not something that happens overnight. So I guess we'll keep at it. (laughs) All right. Thank you. And we'll see you on Twitter. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for your time today. In Pittsfield, Massachusetts, a Valentine's Day City Hall hearing had advocates and one opponent of the downtown protected bike lane come out to speak in the public comments on whether to keep the street improvements on North Street in downtown Pittsfield. All the supporters spoke eloquently. One speaker, Barbara Mahoney, stood out. My name is Barbara Mahoney and I'm a resident of Pittsfield. I'm here tonight in support of the changes that were made for the traffic pattern on North Street. The first time I drove on North Street after the changes, I had to slow down to become aware of the new configuration. But since that time, I have no problem navigating North Street. I have no problem making a right or left turn from the one lane for cars and trucks and vans. A lane for bicycles was a definite need. But the best part of this new design is parking on North Street. 
is so much easier to park and departing from a parking place, one can view oncoming traffic. So it's a breeze to park on North Street. One of the objectives was to slow down traffic and that has been accomplished too. I usually do not talk about my age, but since I had a significant birthday in January, I think it's pertinent to this issue. If a 90-year-old woman can easily drive on North Street and this new design benefits cyclists and slows down traffic on North Street, then why all this controversy? Too much time, folks. Folks, let the people speak and no applause, please. Too much time has been given to this issue. We need to be spending time on the issues of poor roads, potholes that can do damage to our cars, dams that may break, the homeless. I mean, I could go on and on, but that's where I think your priorities need to be. Thank you. So this is Barbara Mahoney. Hi, Barbara. Good morning. So you're a Pittsfield resident. You don't look 90, although I don't know who does. I mean, I don't know what 90 looks like exactly. <laughs> but to just sort of drop that was a nice tactic. Only you could do that. So what brought you there? Well, I had been thinking about writing a letter to the editor, and I'd never got around to it. And then when I found out that they were thinking about putting this out as a voting item, and, and I thought that was just absolutely ludicrous. And that was really what said, hey, you've got to go speak about this. Um, and I'm a retired educator, so that also helped in terms of how to do my speech when you talk about my last few lines. I'm like, oh, yes, this, this is the way to do this. It was a no-brainer. I also was a member of the Citizenship Academy in Pittsfield, where you learn about all the different agencies in the city of Pittsfield. So that's what brought me to it. It was not a matter that needed to be put to the public. I just think it's wonderful to have bike lanes. I mean, years ago, I mean, I rode a bike and always enjoyed, enjoyed bike riding. And as one person said, it's also good in this day and age not to be using cars if we don't have to in terms of the exhaust. That's sort of the background of how I really came there to speak out in favor of, of the changes that had been made. Do you have a, a good understanding of what the vote was going to be? Because it was a little confusing. The vote was to whether to have the bike lanes or to go back to having four lanes of traffic on North Street, two on one side and two on the other side. It was confusing there what's going to happen to that there seems to be some legal snag fused. Yeah, I heard the discussion afterwards was just on technicalities, really. Yeah. So I'm hoping that they can definitely stop that process. It's a waste of time and money and a lot of things, too. There was only one person who spoke in favor of taking the lane out, and that was somebody with a business group. Yeah. In terms of people's, you're right, speaking, most people got out and supported what was being done with maybe some changes with the parking. But I don't see the reason to do this because it's so easy now to park parallel with that bike lane where it used to be often to, to try to park on North Street. Backing out with two lanes of traffic, 
forget it. That's why I'm, you know, think it's great the way it is. So you feel safer without a bunch of speeding cars coming up oh, the street at you? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's why I could never understand why anybody would want to go back to that. And the other point, too, was to slow down traffic. You don't want people speeding on North Street to meet the city. One of the persons spoke about this, you know, being so pedestrians are safer this way, too, in crossing the street. It's very hard for me to understand why anybody would want to go back to what was there originally. Thank you, Barbara. I hope you continue to enjoy and speak out on behalf of your protected lane in Pittsfield. I certainly will. And thank you so much for interviewing me. I appreciate that. This is Karen Perlick and Ben Gerhardstein from Walk Bike Berkeley. And so you're trying to get a protected lane on Hopkins Street. Is some street calming infrastructure? Yeah, all of the above. We've um, got the street, Hopkins Street, that has uh, cut, connects East and West Berkeley. Wonderful amenities on it. It has four different schools, including our city's largest middle school. It has uh, multiple preschools. It has wonderful shops, a track, a pool. Um, it's really an amazing street and connects people from both East and West Berkeley to these facilities. But because of the way that the street network works in Berkeley, Hopkins is the only reasonable access to most of those amenities from people in both in East and West Berkeley. So it's the only way to get there, but it's incredibly unsafe right now. It's all um, focused on people driving and there is uh, no space for people to ride their bike or scoot safely to these uh, wonderful amenities and schools along Hopkins. So we are trying to um, get the city to put in protected bike lanes along Hopkins Street to connect all of our children in East and West Berkeley to our largest middle school um, and to all the other schools along the street and for everyone to be able to get to all of the amazing shops and amenities um, along Hopkins Street. Sounds yeah, pretty straightforward. Yeah, I, we think so. We think it's really straightforward. The city has had a bike plan that was adopted in 2017 um, that talks about getting people of all ages and abilities across the city. Um, we've done a lot of work in our city. We have over 15% bike commuting in Berkeley, which is really quite high. And um, and it's mostly done through a parallel bike network where our most of our city is a gridded street network and people can ride on parallel streets that we've worked to make the intersections across busy thoroughfares safe so people can get around much of the city on this kind of parallel bike network. But there are places in the city now that we're getting to that are actually much more difficult to get to, and Hopkins Street is one of them. There's just no parallel street to Hopkins that works to get people to these amenities safely. Um, and so we're getting to the point now where we've done all of the easy stuff, and we're working on the harder stuff, what it's going to actually take to have a full network through Berkeley that's safe for all ages and abilities um, and convenient and delightful. We want it to be wonderful to get around Berkeley on bike or scooter um, or other micro mobility device. And the reason we have this opportunity right now is the city has slated Hopkins Street to be repaved um, this year in 2023. This is the best time to make safety upgrades. When we repave a, a street, especially a, a relatively long stretch of a street, it's about a mile and a half in total. It's cost effective and makes sense to go ahead and implement the plans that the city has to improve pedestrian and bicycle safety. And so that's what we're trying to do is kind of hold the city accountable to its plans and, and implement the improvements that should come along 
when we make the investment in that public space. And our city actually has multiple plans. We counted over 10 different policies and plans that call for safe places for people to walk and bike in, in Berkeley. And we have a Vision Zero plan. We have a bike plan. We have a pedestrian plan. Um, we have a climate action plan. There's all sorts of different plans through Berkeley that all call um, in fact, the number one thing they call for individuals to do for climate action is to change their mode of transportation. So we have to make it safe for them to do so and build the infrastructure for that. Um, and this Hopkins Street project is a major piece of that network in order to make that happen. What we don't have is a parking preservation plan. And that's the rub with this project. Hopkins uh, has various widths. And on some segments of the street, staff have been able to uh, design it so that it preserves some on-street parking. And in other segments of the street, that's not possible uh, with adding protected bike lanes and pedestrian improvements. Hopkins in this project has received a lot of what we like to call bike lash from uh, neighbors and especially who are concerned about parking loss. And so that's why we're now you know, years into this campaign to add, add bike lanes, really needing to show support. I would imagine that there are a lot of people who would assume that a city like Berkeley would be an easy place to put in a protected bike lane. But the fact of the matter is that Berkeley, like pretty much any city in the United States, is still an automobile-oriented town. For too long, we've really just focused on the low-hanging fruit when it comes to creating you know a walkable and bikeable community and now we're saying no we really do need to make some harder choices and decide whether we're going to continue to prioritize driving and storage of vehicles in our roadways or if we're going to take some of that space and dedicate it to making it safer for people who are walking and rolling to get around what we're seeing is that there are a lot of people who are self-professed environmentalists and progressives who are still very tied to their cars. That liberal blind spot for cars and the damage that it does to our cities is very real. And it's coming to a head in Berkeley or with this project and others, and we're calling it out. And we're saying, you know, really it is time to move past that way of thinking. And being a progressive city means putting people's safety and climate action first. Well, and it also, let's talk about the equity angle with the liberal blind spot I was at. Um, the Smart Growth America's Equity Conference just uh, two weeks ago, and the amazing Calvin Gladney, who's the president of Smart Growth America, opened up the conference. And one of his comments was, you know, when we look like at things like the death of Tyre Nichols at the hands of police being pulled over in his car, um, Calvin's comment was, every time we build a protected bike lane, we are creating an opportunity for black and brown people to get around their city without being in a car and therefore without putting them in that danger zone of where they can get pulled over by police. Because we know that the uh, number one reason that black and brown people interact with police is through traffic stops. Um, and so all of these things are tied together. And here in Berkeley, this Hopkins project is an equity project because it is actually the reason that all of these amenities are on Hopkins Street is because that is an area in one of the wealthier, historically wealthier and whiter districts in Berkeley. That's where the, the middle school is. All three of our middle schools are in East Berkeley, which is the wealthier part of Berkeley. The track, the pool, um, all of these amenities don't exist in West Berkeley in the historically redlined area of Berkeley. And yet all of the children in West Berkeley go to this middle school. So they all have to get from their neighborhood 
the furthest distance up to this middle school and we are not making it safe for them to do that. So there are. This is about historic disinvestment in neighborhoods, um, and the infrastructure that where that infrastructure has been built historically, and where that infrastructure has not been built. So there's a whole another conversation about um, who are we making the streets safe for, and who are we giving access to um, in our cities. And part of what we're looking at is that you know all of this space is publicly owned space. Our streets are owned by our entire community, and yet over forty percent of people don't drive, and that includes all of our children. And yet we've dedicated all of that space to only people who drive. So it's either while they're getting to and from the places they're going or while they're, or so that they can then store their car in that public space. And none of that space is carved out for the people that are riding their bikes or riding a scooter or riding a micromobility device, including kind of uh, electric wheelchairs and things like that. So, you know, it's what we're talking about is rebalancing that public space just a little bit and saying, you can still drive, but we also need to make space for people who are getting there in other ways, including all of our children and all of our middle schoolers, 900 students at this school who could be riding their bike. Some of them are riding their bike now and it's incredibly unsafe. Um, and others are choosing not to ride their bike because uh, they can't get there safely and their parents won't let them ride because it's not safe enough. Um, and so what we're asking is to basically rebalance the use of that public space so that everybody has a chance to use it safely. And that means that people might have to actually park in their driveways, which most of the houses along Hopkins Street actually have driveways and have off-street parking. So this is secondary parking that they would be losing. Um, in addition, most of the parking around all of the shops is being retained, um, but but some of it will go away. And so even just that little bit of loss of parking has created this this firestorm of opposition to the project when all we're doing is saying, let's just rebalance it a little bit and make it a little bit, um, carve out a little bit of space for people that are doing things besides driving. Is there something that people can do to support who don't live in Berkeley? I think we're calling on uh, folks who live and visit Berkeley mainly to voice their support for this project to our city council. And the, the best way that folks can contribute to that right now, um, this vote is still a couple months away, is to go to our website, walkbrightberkeley.org, click on our Hopkins Street update. Uh, there's a link to a petition there. There's a link to sign up for a yard sign. Broader than that, you know, if you're on Twitter, boost our content, show folks that there are eyes on Berkeley. You know, our progressive city cannot claim to be in a climate emergency and taking action and, and a vision zero city uh, and continue to prioritize driver convenience over the safety of our kids. So you're on Twitter, it's at walkbikeberk. Yep. And your website is walkbikeberkeley.org. That's and, it. You know, it's a lot of people doing the same fight all over. And you'll hear that in this episode. We're in good company um, or bad company. I don't know how you want to frame it, but <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I think we are. We're part of a nationwide movement trying to reclaim um, some space in our cities to ensure that we can get around safely and uh, sustainably and equitably. And you know, there's a lot of co-benefits to doing this work. Um, and I think we we see that all the time. We've sacrificed a lot for you know, automobility um, being the primary focus of how we've designed our cities. And there's a lot of good work going on and we want to recognize that and are, are doing our best to you know do our part in Berkeley. Keep up the good work. Thanks. You too. Thanks for promoting it and giving folks a, a showcase. Mm -hmm.
This is Seamus Garrity. I'm about to interview Liam Dillon, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He covers housing for the Los Angeles Times, and he has a podcast called Give Me Shelter. We are talking about the intersection of housing and active transportation infrastructure. Hey, Seamus. Uh, last week, I interviewed Councilwoman Nikki Perez, uh, who ran on a pro-housing platform in the city of Burbank and ended up receiving more votes than anyone in the history of that city. And I wanted to discuss, you know, the intersection of housing and bikes and active transportation with her. And I wanted to to see if you could weigh in in that space as well. Housing and transportation, I think they're inexorably linked in, in, in a number of different concerns. When you're talking about ways in which the state of California is trying to address both its housing crisis, a shortage of available homes for folks who want to live here, particularly for lower income residents, and also its climate change concerns, the state has made very clear numerous on numerous occasions that there's no way the state will meet its climate change goals, no matter how many electric vehicles are on the road, unless people drive less. And so how do you make it so that people drive less, you get them to live closer to where they work and where they shop and do all those sorts of things, right? And if you want to do that while at the same time ameliorating the housing shortage, then you have to have a lot more homes near where people uh, work and shop and near things, right? When it comes to the cost of building housing, particularly low-income housing, you know, we have this tremendous shortage, particularly for low-income housing in the state. And if the costs are so high to build, then that means you get less of it for having more money, right? And we found a number of projects recently in the Bay Area, close to a dozen, and there may be more at this point, that cost over $1 million per unit, per unit to build, which is, you know, an insane number. And and again, one that really hamstrings the state's ability to address its affordable housing crisis. By the way, it's the highest of any state in the country, in part because of a, a variety of mandates, including parking. You know, if you want to build affordable housing projects, they often have parking mandates and the mandates to have that parking, oftentimes, particularly in denser urban areas where the costs are higher, are for underground parking, right? And so if you're adding that cost on top of what it costs to build, that means you get fewer homes for your dollar. Those are just two instances where the connection between housing and transportation is really, really clear. In our approach to addressing the housing crisis in Los Angeles and Southern California, addressing transportation systems is maybe the first step in some ways. Where do you put bikes specifically like as a serious way of addressing our transportation systems? Yeah, I kind of see it as part of like an all of the above thing, everything else is an alternative to like single occupancy vehicle driving, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, you should make it easier for people to, to meet all these goals, make it easier for people to ride bikes, make it easier for people to use bus transit or, or rail or whatever, make it easier for people to walk, or, you know, scoot. I live in uh, on the west side of Los Angeles and to get to downtown, it could take me, you know, 45 minutes to an hour on the light rail. Whereas driving except during the height of rush hour could take me maybe 20 minutes to a half an hour, right? Even though I live very, very close to a light wrist issue. And I, I understand all this stuff and it still doesn't make much sense for me to do that trip because I'm doubling it. And it's maddening when I'm on the light rail and sitting at a stoplight, you know, having grown up on, on the East Coast and sort of seeing mass transit, just mind blowing to me that, that you don't get signal priority, for instance, for these trains that are coming downtown because you're concerned about... Uh, you know, a handful of drivers, people making left turns, right, um, on the streets. It just, just doesn't make sense if you want to prioritize these sorts of uh, active transportation or non-car alternatives. 
the reason why I'm not I'm not been talking my own personal experience with uh, with bikes so much is because I don't really know how to ride a bike. Didn't happen when I was a kid. Uh, I tried in my early 20s and sort of was successful briefly, but never never really stuck with me. Uh, I think, unfortunately, at this point, particularly because it's so beautiful here in LA, and I I think there'd be a lot of benefit. That is a is that an avocado? <laughs> Potentially, yeah. So my my own podcast, we have sort of a crazy housing story every week that we refer to as the avocado of the fortnight. And um, me not on a bike podcast while not knowing how to bike probably qualifies. I think. Yeah, good. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh man, is there a city in California that you can point to that you think is doing a fantastic job with the intersection of active transportation and? housing and planning it out and building it. I think there are a number of sort of state and federal laws that make it hard. You know, I've written a whole bunch about the the California Environmental Quality Act, which is a state law that has been around for over 50 years that requires evaluation of a project effect on the environment. It's actually been used many times, um, this law, to stop the imposition or the creation of bike lanes. You know, I call that out in multiple stories that I've done as an example of something where an environmental law being used as sort of cross purposes to what we think, you know, how we should better the environment, which is to get people out of cars and, and onto bikes, right? I mean, the, the law previously had talked about congestion measures as the sort of primary way. And if a bike lane, you know, incurred on a, on a traffic lane, that may make that road more congested. But it didn't take into account the fact that you would be getting people out of cars and, and on and onto bikes, right? Um, which is obviously a much bigger potentially a much bigger way to reduce emissions. You know, these sorts of things, I think, at a high level, make it harder for communities to uh, put forward these sorts of uh, bike and, and other active transportation projects. And I think the focus really needs to be there. You can spend a lot of time and effort as a city or as a community promoting these sorts of plans, but it shouldn't take that much time and effort to do it given what we understand about what the climate benefits and health benefits are for, for these programs. And even the cost of living. I mean, Los Angeles is you know regarded as maybe the least affordable city in the country in part yeah. because of the cost of, of owning a car and, right. and having to pay for insurance and gas and, all sure. that and parking. Yeah. Yeah. When are we going to schedule a bike lesson? I actually, when people found out last week that Councilwoman Nikki Perez couldn't ride a bike, people sent me um, the fastest way to learn how to ride a bike. So (laughs) I'm going to try to put together a a workshop and I'll send it to you. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd, I'd love to do it. My big hesitancy as it comes to Los Angeles I live in a fairly bike-friendly area of Los Angeles, you know, where there's lots of bike paths and paths that are like protected bike lanes and things like that. But my concern is just me getting from my apartment to that protected bike area is really dangerous, man. I don't know what I'm doing. I am not, you know, willing to like risk my life as a novice uh, at best bike user to get three blocks to where I know I'm going to feel safe. Obviously, that's my problem. But that, I think, is also the problem of the built environment. When I moved to L.A. a little more than three years ago, I was living off Venice Boulevard. And that's crazy. I see people riding bikes all day, six, eight lanes of traffic across. And I don't know how anybody would feel safe, even the most expert folks on those roads. I was teaching piano on the west side. And okay. I, I would drive 100 miles a day. I literally wow. 100 miles a day in Los Angeles. Wow. And by the time I was done teaching, it was pretty much still rush hour. It would take it could take two hours yeah. back to where I live 
from the west side and yeah. uh, Downey was a suburb, whatever. And it is not far at all from downtown Los Angeles. I think it's 10 miles or less. Roughly that, yeah. At rush hour, that drive is over two hours. Uh, there's no way to get there on rail. I mean, a bus is going to take probably four hours. Right. But I'm able to ride that in 40 minutes. I have to traverse the city of Vernon, which is industrial and, and sort yeah. of apocalyptic. I mean, it's yeah. scary. But, but, you know, one thing that happens at rush hour, I mean, I'm not recommending anyone do this, is that it's a parking lot, you know? Right, right, right. Um, if you're new to, to bikes, like riding through Vernon at rush hour, it really is hectic out there and unsafe, even for experts. Usually I, I like to close with, where is your bike joy? Like, where do you find no, no, well, bikes? I did actually did a little personal narrative story when I was in my early 20s. And I did for like for the first time kind of take a you know, step to learning how to ride. And I was able to traverse the parking lot I was learning in, a, you know, a few times um, with the bike and felt good enough about that. When I had figured everything out, right? And I was like good to go and accomplished this sort of life milestone that I had never in my life before done. I, I compared that feeling to what it was like to sort of finish a long, satisfying novel. And that's pretty nice. You know, that's a great feeling. My bike joy is to get to the point, perhaps again in my life, where I can feel comfortable enough to uh, ride a bike and, and feel just as good as when I finish, um, you know, this down on the Fury, right? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, God. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, yeah. Shane. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.